there should be signs over everyone's desk that says transparency and eyes wide open, especially as everyone, everyone has as their mandate data centers. I don't think there's enough data centers to go around. Uh, so I think the competition is going to continue to be pretty fierce in, in a space that's very niche, but has just terrific yield characteristics. So I think we're all going to be in there for a while and we need to be careful. You are listening to the AFIRE podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. We make plans that are mostly based on the state of play right now. But what happens when the rules change? You know, they usually do, especially now. And for investors and managers to thrive, we need more than a little flexibility to succeed. I'm speaking today with Max LeVictor, who wrote a piece for the latest issue of AFIRE Summit called Carry On, Carry Over. And he's going to help us look at one way investors are adapting to a changing landscape. Max is a principal at Hody's Weil and Associates, and he's responsible for capital raising and their advisory practice. Um, so I feel very fortunate to have him here on the show and, and want to thank you, Max, for joining us on the AFIRE podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. Well, we should probably start broad. Uh, you wrote in your article that the market generally has changed its opinion about continuation vehicles. All right. How have they changed and, and, and why? Yeah. So, you know, looking back over the last 10 or so years, continuation vehicles were you know probably most frequently used um, in scenarios where, you know, funds had reached an end of life or, you know, otherwise kind of ran into some sort of trouble and, you know, the fund needed to, you know, some sort of an extension um, in order to, you know, effectuate kind of a, you know, plan B, if you will, um, you know, to try to, um, you know, kind of rectify a situation. Um, and if you think about kind of the timeline over the last, you know, 10 or so years, you know, you think about kind of 2008 to 2010 and funds, you know, that were raised and, and initiated prior to that, you think about kind of an eight to 10 year fund life, you know, a lot of those situations were kind of created by, you know, GFC type repercussions, you know, that got kind of got funds into trouble and, you know, managers would, you know, hold on to those, you know, assets for, you know, five, six years thereafter and, you know, kind of trying to find ways to kind of bring them back into the black, if you will. Um, and so that was probably kind of the most frequent use of, of continuation funds. You know, over the last few years, what we've seen increasingly is that, you know, in fact, continuation funds are being used for positive situations and situations where, you know, a manager has, um, you know, kind of quickly effectuated a business plan across, you know, portfolio, uh, you know, whether it's a development or a value add business plan, um, kind of brought the assets to, you know, some sort of stabilization, but there continues to be an opportunity, um, you know, either to just kind of hold the assets and benefit from a, an attractive supply demand dynamic, or maybe there are even value creation opportunities down the road. Um, you know, in either case, manager feels like they have, they're, they're kind of best positioned to continue to manage those assets, but maybe with a slightly different cost of capital. And, 
you know, we'll get into obviously there are kind of benefits to the manager for doing that. Um, and what we've seen is, you know, the managers have been able to kind of make their case um, to be able to do that with investors. And, you know, there've been, I think, a, a few large examples that have kind of, um, you know, given a, a stamp of approval in the market, if you will. And so investors, I think, are increasingly um, getting comfortable with those types of situations. Um, and it's, you know, becoming a little bit more commonplace to have those discussions. Mm -hmm. And I would think especially when you see uh, folks like Blackstone executing this kind of strategy that, it, 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 to your point, it puts a stamp of approval on it. Now, I assume that, all right, so you're describing the new plan A uh, with these kinds of vehicles. I assume that there are still investors that are, are executing, uh, that, that are doing it because it's plan B. Um, and yet there seems to be uh, less of a negative uh, viewpoint than perhaps there was before about both plans. Yeah, I mean, I, I would put them into fairly different buckets, actually, kind of the, the you know, the LP-led secondaries or or GP-led in the case of kind of a, you know, needing an extension. I think those are generally still, you know, th those are kind of coming to be because of something negative that's happened. But those those are kind of fewer and farther between, just given, you know, we, you know, 12 years from the financial crisis, you know, at this point, you, know, you think about kind of assets that kind of came through that and there were a lot of great real estate that was maybe capitalized or financed poorly that ran into trouble despite being, you know, great real estate. I think since then there have been less situations where, you know, poor capital structure, but real estate that you want to own, it's, it's more often than not, you know, if, if an asset's doing poorly, it's, it's not necessarily good real estate. So I think that the situations where, um, you know, funds have kind of run into trouble despite having having good real estate. It's just kind of less frequent than it was, you know, five plus years ago. Um, and so, you know, kind of, again, bucketing the kind of plan A situations and plan B situations, you know, a bit differently. I think what's changing is kind of the acceptance of the continuation funds in kind of the, the positive scenarios um, where, mm -hmm. you know, previously it just hadn't really been done because of kind of the inherent conflicts um and you know it's it's more and more frequently being accepted by investors and and again because there are such you know there's such tremendous value to the manager there's obvious kind of incentive to try to effectuate those kind of transactions well the, the conflict part has often been the discussion i agree with you uh, about these things at least historically um how do you think investors both gps and lps should approach the inherent conflict of some of these structures and 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 how is the SEC looking at it or asking us to look at it um, as we go forward yes that's that's the kind of million dollar question um, and it depends a little bit on kind of the particulars of the transaction so you know in some cases um, and Blackstone's biomed deal was an example of that you know the the continuation fund is truly kind of you know substantially all of the existing investors in the original funds, kind of converting or rolling their interests into the you know, continuation fund. And that's where you have, you know, you don't necessarily have kind of a third party, a natural third party market test because you don't have necessarily kind of new uh, investors coming into the mix. So, you know, in those cases, you know, generally you want a third party appraisal, fairness opinion, um, you know, some kind of third party, you know, verifying kind of the process that you're running. Um, and that's exactly, you know, what the SEC is proposing. Um, and we'll see kind of how, you know, how that unfolds and, um, 
you know, develops. Um, but then, you know, there are a lot of continuation funds that aren't quite, you know, you, it might be a recapitalization of an original fund, but, you know, the, the majority of the investors are coming in new to the assets. And in, in those cases, you almost kind of have that, that third party check because the new investors are underwriting the assets and, you know, they're obviously incentivized to come in at kind of as, as an attractive price as they can. Um, you know, where the, the, the conflict obviously is the manager wants the original funds, you know, they want to earn their promote based on kind of a, as high a price as possible. So you kind of have that natural check and balance there. Well, I mean, actually, what might be helpful is to have a little bit of a breakdown of from an LP perspective versus or and a GP perspective. What is the benefit of going through the trouble if it's not an emergency, if it's something that you have a choice to do it? Yeah. So, you know, I, we can start with kind of the, the benefits to the manager. I think those are probably a little bit more obvious, um, you know, for you know, you're obviously continuing to then earn a fee stream and that, you know, could be management fees as well as kind of property level fees. So if you're a vertically inter integrated group and you have a, uh, an affiliate property management business, you know, it's, it's difficult to sell a portfolio and then kind of have to right size your entire operation. So it can be, you know, really helpful to the business to be able to continue to manage, you know, that portfolio. There are also information benefits, you know, the kind of, if you're a multifamily group, you know, having, you know, beds under management across the country obviously gives you kind of unique insights and it can help inform, you know, your next value add fund. So there are benefits to that as well. And then just kind of from a franchise value perspective, um, you know, in a lot of cases, these continuation funds are structured as, you know, perpetual or, or open-end vehicles. And, you know, the, the multiples on those kinds of management fee streams tend to be you know, higher than their closed end counterparts. So I think a number of benefits to the manager. From the LP perspective, you know, it is quite a lot of brain damage to go through, but there are, you know, a number of benefits to an investor. You know, generally speaking, investors are, are there's a trend towards doing more with fewer managers. And so, you know, particularly kind of in the cases of sector specialists, you know, if you're a if you're invested in a data center fund as an example, and that data center manager, you know, that's kind of all they do, then it might be good for you to be able to scale your relationship beyond, you know, your opportunist, opportunistic strategy into, you know, a core, core plus strategy as well. It's kind of a way to scale the relationship. Um, you know, and then in addition to that, generally speaking, we're still seeing investors below their target allocations to real estate. So they might have a target of, you know, 10% allocated to real estate, but they might only be at eight and a half or nine percent. And in fact, in our in our most recent um, allocations monitor that we conduct in partnership with Cornell, we found that Delta uh, this this past year to be as large as it's been um, since we've been conducting the survey. So in a lot of cases, investors don't necessarily want their capital returned to them. Um, so maybe the fund has gone really well, but, you know, the, rather than kind of get all that capital return and have to go find another way to redeploy it, um, the manager that they've already invested with might be best positioned to continue to manage those assets for them, you know, and, and they maybe move it from their value add bucket to their core bucket. Um, so there are just kind of from a portfolio construction standpoint, there are a lot of reasons that an investor might want to continue to stay invested. Um, and then also, you know, I think one last point, maybe a lot of the 
sectors that we're seeing these continuation funds um, kind of take place in tend to be kind of hard to access, um, hard to access sectors, you know, both from kind of just an investment opportunity standpoint, but also from kind of a supply demand, you know, fundamental standpoint. And so, you know, investors might be more inclined if it's their, you know, life sciences or data center, even industrial manager, um, you know, if I, if they get all their capital returned to them, they then have to go find another opportunity, which just isn't as, as easy in some of these sectors. So, um, you know, stay invested with their manager, benefit from, you know, uh, an undersupply of investment opportunities usually means, you know, it is a good thing for, you know, fundamental supply demand dynamics as well. So, you know, gee, if I can't find a lot of places to put my money, it's, it probably means that, you know, that sector is, is well positioned to, you know, from a rent growth and, um, you know, cap rate perspective. That makes sense. I mean, the close ended fund structure itself, I think was not designed for the current environment where we have a shortage of assets and uh, no shortage of capital chasing after those assets. So I think just the notion of, gee, I can now bridge from this close-ended fund into something that starts approaching more of an open-ended uh, environment, I think is pretty attractive. But all right, so you've sold me, I've decided that we're going to move in this direction uh, with the fund, um, but man, you, you called it brain damage. How should I approach this from an operational standpoint? What is it that I need to do and, and how do I need to think about the process going forward? Yeah, so from the, the manager's perspective, um, you know, communicating with your LPs kind of early and often about your intention um, is generally kind of a good place to start. Um, these kinds of transactions aren't what LPs are typically underwriting on their day-to-day basis. Um, you know, obviously that's kind of a broad statement. There are a lot, a lot of kind of large sophisticated LPs out there that, you know, are, are tend to be more kind of direct investors and, and, you know, as such kind of are more comfortable underwriting a portfolio of assets, but by and large, you know, typical LP is more used to underwriting a team and a strategy and a track record than they are, you know, 10 or 12 different assets. And how do I get kind of comfortable around pricing? So, you know, from, from the manager's perspective, you know, kind of making that process as uh, accessible and transparent as possible, you know, generally that involves third-party appraisals because um, then, you know, an investor might kind of stress test some of the assumptions or, you know, just try to get comfortable around some of the assumptions, but they're, you know, you don't want to ask an investor to come up with a price. Um, right. And then from the investor's perspective, you know, um, it is it is quite a lot to get their arms around, um, but there can be a lot of benefits for helping uh, helping form these vehicles. Um, you know, kind of economic and and governance. Uh, you know, kind of type benefits for being you know founding investor, if you will. That makes sense. Well, all right. So uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the benefits. We've talked a lot about you know, and other than brain damage, we really haven't talked about the negatives. But is there when you look at this, what are the risks to this strategy? you know, from all sides of the table that people need to pay attention to, particularly what are those things that people are not aware of now that they should be aware when looking at these secondaries? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I, probably the, one of the more obvious ones is just, it's just pricing, right? You're not getting a true third party sale. And so, you know, particularly in some of the sectors that, you know, we would say are kind of white hot right now, 
again, I come back to kind of industrial or data center or life sciences, you know, are, are, are you asking your investors to transact at a price that three or five years down the road isn't going to make sense? And, you know, I think, I think generally, you know, people have gotten comfortable that again, given the supply and demand fundamentals, that that is, you know, hopefully relatively low risk, but, you know, we live in a dynamic environment. Um, you know, I, I would, I would say kind of secondarily, maybe, um, you know, liquidity, um, is kind of an interesting, um, interesting dynamic to look at it as these funds are first formed. And, you know, I think managers need to be kind of transparent and investors need to be kind of eyes wide open about, you know, you think about an open-end fund at formation and whether it's, you know, one or 2 billion of NAV at the outset, you know, investors generally aren't getting really kind of substantial liquidity, um, you know, until the fund scales quite, quite, um, you know, a lot beyond that. So, um, you know, you think about, you know, $50 million investor and being able to submit a redemption request and get liquidated, you know, one or two quarters after that, you really need to have kind of a large diversified investor base and substantial capital flows kind of coming in on a quarterly basis so that the manager can comfortably liquidate those investors. So I think just being, again, kind of, um, you know, eyes wide open about, you know, it might be an open end fund being formed, but, you know, as a founding investor, you're really kind of committing to this fund for a few, you know, at least a few years until the fund gets to scale. And again, we, you know, there are, there are benefits to the founding investors generally offered by managers for kind of, you know, being there first and, and helping to, you know, see that, that open end fund and get yeah. it to scale. In, in the old days on television, whenever someone would perform a stunt, the announcer would say, don't try this at home. Uh, it sounds like this is certainly it, it's complicated enough that you, you need to be you need to be good at it. You need to be a professional and really look at it. I I would think that there should be signs over everyone's uh, desk that says transparency and eyes wide open. I think that's very important, especially as everyone everyone has as their mandate data centers. I don't think there's enough data centers to go around. Uh, so I think the competition is going to continue to be pretty fierce in in a space that's very niche but has just terrific yield characteristics. So I think we're all going to be in there for a while and we need to be careful um, as we do that. So uh, we've pretty much run out of time, but I wanted to uh, encourage anyone who's listening to make sure you take a look at Max's article. Uh, I think it, it's just a great kind of primer on what's going on here and what to take a look at. Uh, it's in the latest issue available at afire.org. Uh, and I want to thank Max uh, for joining us once again. He is, uh, as before, a principal at Hodes Wireland Associates. Thank you, Max, for joining us on the AFIRE podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.